Hey, good morning. How's everyone doing? Awesome. Hey, we got work to do, so go to uh, your Bibles now. First Peter chapter 3 is where we're at. If you don't have one, uh, you have a smartphone, so uh, work your way there. Want to make sure whenever possible, especially uh, today in messages like today, that your eyes are on the text so you see that uh, what is being said is true and you can test me on that and not my own ideas. So as we celebrate four years, you've heard us say uh, something on repeat throughout that time. We exist to make disciples for the glory of God and, and the joy of all people. Uh, the disciples of Jesus, we, 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 that's what, wh- why we're here. And so uh, we want Jesus to set the agenda for his church. And so as far as it depends on us, we try to uh, search the scriptures and say, how do we do that? And, and one of the ways that we do that is in this moment right now, after we've sung our songs and prayed our prayers and, and we open the word together, one of the ways we do that is to uh, let Jesus set the agenda for his church is to work through uh, usually nine times out of 10, uh, uh, one of the 66 books of the Bible. So we take it passage by passage and we just say, all right, what do you have for us today? Uh, sometimes we'll do topical, but more than not, we'll, we'll come back. And, and so, for example, we're going through First Peter in our Faithfulness in a Foreign Land series. And, and this is just a, a, a timely message then as it is now. Uh, but, but when you do that as a church, there's times when you come to places... Like culturally, it's going to bump up. Well, actually, almost always the Bible is going to culturally bump up with uh, what the world, where the world is at. But if we were a church that said, we just want to get a lot of people in the room and we just want to uh, do a really good production, we would avoid this passage. I'll just say that up front. Uh, we would avoid this passage because uh, this passage is not culturally... Um, Loved. Let's, let's just say that. It's not loved culturally. But uh, nonetheless, I'm just going to say before we d- jump into this, uh, hear me out. Okay, give me my next, well, it's going to go a little longer today. Give me my next 38 minutes and just hear me out. Now, you could uh, come at the end of that and, and be uh, offended and, and walk away and say, I'm never going back to that church. And it wouldn't be the first time someone did that in one of my sermons. It won't be the last time. Uh, but ne- nevertheless, uh, I want you to hear me out because I, I believe that this passage is ultimately for our joy, ultimately for our good. And, and God has good purposes and plans in it. So just hear me out for the next 35, 38 minutes and uh, I'll read our passage and then I will pray and we will unpack it together. So First Peter chapter 3, starting verse 1, we'll go through verse 7. As you listen carefully, this is God's word. This is likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. I will unpack that. So that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, sheesh, (laughs) and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you to the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word. We, we believe that your word is active and alive. It's from you and it's 
uh, for our good and for our joy. And so I pray that as you would uh, just illumine our minds and our spirits and our hearts, our wills to be bent to your will and uh, we might walk on paths of righteousness for your name's sake. And then we might find life in these texts, in this text. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, when you come to a passage like this, first of all, uh, there are usually two errors that, that come out of the gate on this. And, and probably everyone in here is kind of leaning towards one or the other. Uh, and the first error is, uh, well, I'll just call it the, the fundies, the fundamentalists, okay? So, so a fundamentalist will come to this passage and, and rip this passage and like Ephesians chapter 5 out and say, hey, this is, this is God's will. This is like God's manual for marriage. And so, so, so out of context, they just say, this is what God wants. This is his manual for marriage. I don't care about the history or the context. And that's really a kind of a strange thing. If, if, if we come to this passage and see it as a manual for marriage, it's a terrible manual. What manual is six sentences long, right? Like, like there's more to it than that going on in that, but yet uh, what in this vision, it's like, hey, uh, 1950s kind of ideal home, uh, a wife stays home, she's barefoot pregnant in the kitchen, the husband goes off and he comes back and he is served and doted upon, and, and then that's the vision, and when we can apply this passage and say, see, ladies, see, world, this is what is good in the world, this is the vision, and, and um, the if you were to even question that kind of interpretation, you would be labeled a, a liberal. You'd be labeled uh, someone who doesn't have a respect for God's word. Okay, so that's, that's one side. And then on the other side, let's just go to uh, the theological liberals. I'll call them the Libbies. So we got the fundies and the Libbies. And they'll say, no, no, no. This is outdated. That was a different time, a different place. This is, uh, that really, it's kind, of, uh, it's kind of offensive. It's on the wrong side of history. Uh, so it may have had something to say then, but they were backwards then. And so uh, all we get out of it is what it said then. And so uh, actually, again, they're doing the same thing. That they're bringing their own presupposition to the text and saying, here's what I feel, here's what I like, and here's how I'm going to make this passage fit my View. And both of them would say, we have a high view of God, we have a high view of the Bible, but actually both of them have a low view of God and a low view of the Bible. So, let me, let me give you a, a quick lesson on what's called hermeneutics. So, the very first class I ever took at seminary was hermeneutics. It's, it's a fancy word for saying interpretation. That there is an art and a science to interpreting, interpreting, uh, interpreting any, any piece of literature, whether it's the Bible or otherwise. Uh, it's an art because the more you do it, the better you get at it. It's a science because there are, there, are, there are rules, there are forms, there are tools that you employ to get to a proper interpretation. And so the very first class I took at seminary was hermeneutics, and I, I fell out of my league. I, I did not grow up Christian. Uh, I, I knew I wanted to go to seminary, but I didn't know anything. That's why I was going to seminary seminary. A lot of my fellow students had gone to Bible college, had grown up, and they're like, yeah, we got this. I didn't know this. And so uh, we got taught a little bit uh, about uh, how to properly interpret. And our first paper uh, that we had to kind of do an interpretive work on was on 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7. And I did terrible. I was like, okay, let's, I got this. And so I, I wrote the paper. I thought it was a good paper. I, I turned it in. And, and by God's grace, it came back with, with red markings all over the place. 
I did not interpret it correctly. I, I, I thought, well, what is going on? And, and what I learned in that moment is you can't just come to the Bible and say, make it say what you want to say. It means something. You have to do hard work. You have to dig deeper to understand and, and to then kind of say what it means for your life. And so I, I was taught in this class uh, three, three words that I want to just teach you in interpreting, interpreting any portion of Scripture. It's this, then, always, now. So then, always, now. So the first thing you have to do is understand that every book of the Bible, every passage was written at a certain time in a particular culture, in a particular context, and it meant something then. It had to mean something then. So, so if you just ignore that, then you will not get to a proper understanding. That, that P- when Peter was writing, there was a real audience with real struggles, facing real things. And, and Peter, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, writes to them to encourage them then. So sometimes, uh, as a pastor, people come up to me and they're like, hey, can, next series, can you do one on the book of they'll say revelations, it's revelation, but can you do one on revelations? And I know what they mean by that. They want me to tell them, hey, is, is, was Obama or um, Trump or Biden the Antichrist? Um, is the COVID-19 vaccine uh, the mark of the beast? Um, what's the role with Israel and Russia and uh, uh, Black Hawk helicopters in the end times? When are we going to be raptured? That's what they want me to say. That's, that's what they want the series on. They've read the Left Behind books, terrible books, by the way. And uh, they, they, that, this is what they want. And so if I'm kind, I'll say, hey, you know, uh, Revelation was written to a particular people at a particular time. Oh, it has relevance for today and the future, but, but we got to first understand that. And they're like, no, 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 no. I said, no, really, we got to understand some Old Testament apocalyptic literature, namely Daniel and Ezekiel. And then we're going to do some work in, in Leviticus because most of it comes out of that kind of imagery. Did you know that? And they're like, no, no, I don't want to know that. I just think Biden's the guy. Like, no, okay, I, I can't talk to you anymore. Uh, and so that, that's an example, right? Okay, so uh, you, you, when you understand the then in the context, then you can pull back because this is God's eternal wor- word. What's the always principle that is coming out of this? Across time and across culture, what, what's always? And when you've done that, then you can start to, uh, what we'd say, translate or exegete our own culture and, and bridge it up. And so uh, how, how do we bring it home? And, and that's the task every week when I stand before you is, what's then, what's always, and what's now? So I got to understand then and the now and then try to connect the two. So for example, when you come to a passage like this, the, the, the dominant cultural narrative in our day, three things, is this, that men and women are the same on every respect, in, in every way. And besides what science and biology might tell us, uh, we can kind of twist that and ignore that, and we, could, we can just say we, we are the same, we, we have the, the same abilities, all, all that. So that's one cultural narrative in our day that, that bumps up against this. The other one is for women to be, find significance, they must have the same goals and achieve the same things as men. So in our day, they think, man, we, I, I want to be able to do everything and more that, that men do. And so that, that's a cultural value. And the third one that bumps up against this is a willingness to acknowledge and accept authority is seen as inherently demeaning. Uh, we are very suspicious of authority. We're very suspicious of <coughs> power structures. And yet <coughs> every organization 
that flourishes has these. You, you don't want to go to a, a church with no authority. You don't want to go to a, a country with no authority. Uh, authority is a good gift from God. And yet uh, it has been abused. And, and some of maybe in this room are coming to this text and, and just thinking, particularly in marriage, uh, of the abuse of authority. And I just want to say up front, nothing in this text and nothing in the Bible uh, is, is saying that if you are being abused, that you just need to endure that for God's sake. No, you need to step away from that. You need to protect yourself and your children. This is not what this passage is, is talking about. But, but it is talking about that God has some design. And in his design, he made things for our flourishing. So with that, understanding the then, always, now, let's, let's begin to look at our passage. And let me just start with the then. I want you to imagine a woman named Priscilla in the first century. Priscilla, uh, she, like uh, most Roman citizens, uh, Rome believed and, and had this kind of cultural belief that the, the cornerstone of the Roman Empire, the foundation, was the household. So, so husbands, wives, children, slaves, the, the household, the individual household made up the, the foundation of the Roman Empire. And in this household, uh, that, that it was just seen that for the stability of the Roman Empire to go forward, the household had to be strong. So it's not, not too different from us, but, but, but they had some what's called household codes. And Priscilla would have been aware of these household codes. Uh, one of the codes in the first century from uh, the Roman statesman Plutarch said this, wives should be subject to their husbands. They, they should not um, worship any other gods. Now there was a pantheon of gods. They should not worship any other gods than the gods of their husband, and they should not have any friend or friend network outside of the friend network of their husband. So this was seen that if you were to deviate from that, you would kind of unsettle the Roman Empire, really. And so these were very strong cultural values. And so you've got Priscilla living in this, and, and one day she goes to the market, and she meets another woman. They kind of hit it off. And there's just a warmness to, to this other woman's smile and lightness to her talk. And they just are talking about significant things, and she finds herself drawn into this conversation so that she goes home and she's just thinking about it, thinking about it. And the next week when she goes back to the market, she's wondering and hoping, I hope I see her again. And uh, for her, by coincidence, but by the providence of God, they do uh, meet each other again and, and they get into a longer conversation. And in the course of the conversation, Priscilla is talking to this woman and the woman begins to say, hey, I, I worship the one true and living God. There's not a million gods, there's just one. And, and Priscilla doesn't really quite understand that in her context, but she's listening and she says, you know, uh, this God is the creator of all things. He made all people, men and women, in, in his image, and, and all of them have value in his sight. And, and in a world where uh, women were not valued as equal as men, this was, this was attractive to Priscilla. And so she's listening some more and she says, hey, he made us in his image for his glory, but, but we have all sinned. We've all rebelled against him and we deserve his justified punishment against sin, his wrath. And, and so Priscilla kind of says, yeah, that's, that's, that's terrible. And he says, but she says, but praise be to God. He didn't leave us there. He's also a God full of mercy and love. And so he came down. He put on flesh. In the person of Jesus, he lived a life of perfect obedience to the Father. And he paid the price for our sin. He went to, of all places, the cruel Roman cross. Priscilla just kind of gasped at that. Like, what? And he died in our place, this perfect 
sinless man died in our place. So, but that's not the end of the story. He was buried and he conquered death in the grave and he has risen to the right hand of the Father now and and anyone who trusts in him might find life forever. And, And so this is just spinning Priscilla's mind. And she goes home and she's thinking and thinking and later that night, she says to the Lord, I believe, I believe. I believe Jesus is the one. I believe Jesus is my Savior. Now she's got a problem, though. She's breaking the Roman household codes. She's worshiping a God other than her husband's God. She's also now got immediately a friend network, a family network outside of her her household, a church. What is she to do? This is the primary situation that Peter is addressing And it's not an uncommon situation throughout history because do not believe the current cultural narrative that Christianity is somehow oppressive to women. No, wherever Christianity has ever gone, it has always lifted the heads of women, lifted the position, lifted the economics, lifted their legal status, lifted them to a place where it's been incredibly attractive to women across the globe and across time. And so what is Peter going to say to to wives who are following the Lord and husbands that aren't? That's the primary concern. But he also has some some just overarching always concerns, whether your husband is a a Christian or not. What is he going to say? And in short, he's going to say, hey, don't flaunt it. Don't, um, Don't hide it. And this was a subversive way. He isn't saying, hey, hide it and just fake your, your worship. Hide it and don't go to church. He says, don't flaunt it. Don't hide it. He's, he's basically saying, live it. Live out your Christianity. In fact, it's in the context of, of this passage that kind of began last week in this kind of, how do we in this, as, as, as elect exiles, as, as foreigners in this world, how do we live in, in relationship to governments and um, uh, employees and masters and now in marriage, how do we live? And you have to understand, you can't just go to First Peter 1, uh, 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7. You've got to understand, it's got a context. And in that context, it starts out, he says, likewise, meaning that there's something tied before this that you have to understand to understand what he's about to say. And he's pointing us to Jesus as our ultimate example and hope of being willingly, even joyfully submissive to governments, to masters, to to employers, and even in the marriage relationship. He says this in chapter 2, verse 20. He says, but if you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. So, Christ's example of submitting himself, leaving his throne in glory and submitting himself for our good and for our life is our example. And so he addresses wives first. He says, wives, be subject to your husbands so that even if, if they do not believe the word, they might be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. As you live out your Christianity, it's an evangelistic tool in your marriages. And some of you, that's your story. Your, your, your wife was just pursuing Jesus and that was drawing you in. 
but he goes on and he, 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 he talks about this braiding of hair and jewelry. And we'll get to that in just a second. Uh, but in verse 5 it says, For this is how the holy w- women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. So he's done a couple things here. He's talking to wives, but he also goes outside of their culture, outside of their time, to a, to a timeless, to the kind of the always thing. And, and notice what he says. The, the main message Peter has for wives in this moment is actually the main message of the entire Bible to all people of all times. Did, did you catch what it was? This, this passage is not primarily about submission. It, it's about the, the, the theme of the Bible for God's people. And it is this, put your hope in God. That's it. He just happens to be applying this to wives in this moment. Put your hope in God. It says you, you, can, you can enter into situations, you can even be in situations that aren't on the outside favorable for you, like being married to a non-believer, but, but in that midst, you can look at Jesus and you can put your hope in God and look at what he actually points to. He says, for this is how the holy women who hoped in God, hoped in God, used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. And then he points out to Sarah and Abraham. That's not just a throwaway verse. He says, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, okay, this different time, different culture. I asked my wife to do that this week. She said, no. (laughs) As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. And and so again, uh, what, what is he saying here? He points to Sarah and Abraham. If you, if you tried, maybe you're still going, if you tried to read the, the Bible in the year this year, uh, in the first few days of January, you read this story. You read about Sarah and Abraham. And, and, and we, we like to think, because we point to Abraham a lot, the father, father Abraham had many sons, all that stuff. But Abraham was an idiot sometimes. He just was. He was always making wrong choices, bad decisions, putting his family, himself, his wife at risk. And in that moment, what was Sarah to do? She put her hope in God. That's what he's saying. He's saying, look, your husband may be an idiot. And your, your husband certainly, there are times, and maybe most of the time, is not worthy of your submission, but it's not about him. It's about you putting your hope in God so that, so that you know that between you and God, you are in a right position. So ladies, I'm going to give that to you if you're like, I would, but my husband's an idiot. I'll give that to you because I'm an idiot sometimes. My wife's put up with me for 22 years. And, and if, if she put her hope in me, uh, that, that would r- make her uh, mostly fall, but sometimes rise and, and fall. But, but Sarah just put her hope in God, and God protected her. And this is what Peter is saying. He's like, look, Christian wives, non-Christian husbands, put your hope in God. I, I know it's dangerous. It's scary out there because the Roman laws, they were all geared towards men, and, and they could have affairs, and they could uh, get divorced, and, and they would get everything, and, and you would be very vulnerable in that moment. So uh, don't, don't put your hope in somehow uh, conjoling or, or, or nagging or, or beating your husband down to follow Jesus. Put your hope in God. Don't flaunt it. Don't hide it. Live it. So put your hope in God. So that, that's the first thing he says, but he puts it negatively first. Don't put your hope in anything else. Don't put your hope in anything else. And he points to verse 3. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair or the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. Peter is not saying that you can't do any of that. He's saying you shouldn't ultimately trust it to accomplish the things that you want 
in your life. He said, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart, the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. God, God says, um, cultivate your inner beauty. So in this way, even though it's 2,000 years, not much has changed. In 2019, $49 billion was spent by Americans in the cosmetic industry. You don't think there's some pressure to put your hope in this external beauty to kind of navigate and get what you want out of the world? You don't think there's some pressure to put your hope in if I just, if I just nag and, and, and beat my husband down and just uh, get, get him to submit to my will, I'll, I'll be successful and maybe I can use my sex appeal for that. You don't think there's some pressure in that? Oh, there's pressure. Uh, look, what, look what God says in his word in Proverbs 21, 9 and 25, 24. It actually echoes the exact same words. It says, It is better to live in a corner of a roof than a house shared with a contentious woman. Uh, or take uh, Proverbs 21, 19. Better to live in a desert with a, than with a quarrelsome and ill-tempered wife. Saying, ladies, your husband might not have it all together. He might be an idiot sometimes, but that does not change the fact that God feels sorry for him if he lives with you and you're just constantly nagging, trying to control the situation. And he's saying, look, you can cultivate a different, a deeper, an eternal kind of beauty. Cultivate the heart, cultivate the mind, cultivate your soul. This is what will last forever. I think Peter has in mind another proverb. We don't have time to look at all of it, but Proverbs 31, this wife that, uh, again, is, is just held up in Scripture, and rightly so, as kind of just this amazing woman. And, and this I mean, read the whole proverb. This would debunk the whole 1950s vision of the ideal family, by the way. Uh, she is an entrepreneur. She is smart. She is, she's out in society. She is making money. She is doing all sorts of things. But look at verse 25, Proverbs 31. It says, strength and dignity are her clothing. That's what she clothes herself with. And she laughs at the time to come. Why? Because she puts her hope in God. She opens her mouth with wisdom. That doesn't just happen. She isn't like, oh my God, you know, um, I, uh, I, don't, I don't know where that comes from. Uh, sorry. She opens her mouth with wisdom. I don't. And the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. Okay. She's cultivated her heart. She looks at, she looks well at the ways of her household. She does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also, and he praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. She's taken the time to pursue the Lord, to pursue her soul, to cultivate her mind, to think well, and, and to, to, to just be a, a, an agent of flourishing in her, her marriage. So she's not put her hope in anything else. And, and so this passage gives us two kind of temptations. One we talked about, just kind of that, that outward beauty, like put my hope in that, but, but she doesn't put her hope in a man. She, she doesn't, and again, our culture runs up against this. You can watch any romantic comedy, and it has the same storyline. 
Uh, there's these two people and they're kind of dissatisfied. They're, they're seeking, they're longing for something. And then they, they kind of early on, they, they cross paths and, and there's something there, but there's a whole bunch of barriers that they've got to overcome for the next hour and a half for, for them to get to that point where, where they're just really satisfied. And, and sometimes the barriers are distance and, and sometimes there are other relationships. See every Julia Roberts movie ever. And, and then uh, once they eventually get past all the barriers, there's this moment at the end of the, the movie, right? You, you know the moment. Uh, maybe it's on a beach and it's raining and, and they run together and she jumps up in his arms and, and there's water dripping and, and they, they embrace this kiss and, and then they look into each other's eyes and they say something. Maybe they say these exact words, you complete me, right? And, and if you're in the theater, you can hear like an audible, ah. If they did it really well, it's like clapping in the theater, right? And I'm watching that and I'm like, that is a hot pile of garbage. <laughs> that is so destructive. It's destructive. This idea that, that, that there's a one out there for you. This idea that, 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 that if you just find the one, you'll be complete. You'll be content. Now, don't get me wrong. I love my wife. We've been married for almost 22 years, but I cannot. I, I was not designed to complete her. She does not complete me. How do I know she's the one? Because we said I do 22 years ago. That's it. She could have married someone else. I could have married someone else. And we would still be satisfied in our marriages. But this idea of the one, put my hope in the one. What happens when, when you, you eventually leave the beach and the kiss isn't there anymore. And you're like, maybe I didn't find the one. It's just a bedrock for uh, discontentment. And this noxious like, uh, notion of eros love as being supreme as opposed to all the other loves of the Bible. And so she does not put her hope in her beauty. She does not put her hope in a man. Let's look at what he has to say to the men. He says, likewise, again, likewise, likewise, Jesus, like him who submitted himself for our good and for his glory, like Jesus, who is our example. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Literally translated, in the way of knowledge. We might break it down in a compassionate, empathetic way. Husbands, live with your wives with empathy. Be considerate, is what it's saying. Husbands, be considerate. Or we might just break it down a little bit more. Husbands, get up. Get up. Your wife is not your slave or your sex slave. She's not there to serve you and meet every need of yours. You have headship in the home, but it's a headship that is totally foreign to the kind of leadership and authority that is found in the world. It's a headship likewise, like Christ's headship, that gets low. Or as C.S. Lewis put it, the crown a man wears in marriage is first one of thorns. This is what you wear. So you get up. You pause the live television. I mean, God gave you that. You don't have to watch SportsCenter five times in a row. You don't have to play video games into your 30s and 40s to the neglect of your family. Get up. Serve your wife. You say, well, I worked all day and I went home and, and I, I, this is me time. No, men, that's not what God created you for. He created you to be tired. 
You're like, well, what about my, my me time? Well, get up early. Get up at five and you can have your me time. But, but your me time doesn't start after you come home from a long day of work. It, you got second shift in that moment because now you've got to serve your wife, help her unload the, the, the groceries, learn how to cook, learn how to clean, put your children to bed, read to them, pray over them, give your wife some space, be considerate is what he's saying. Be empathetic. Get up. It says showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. What what is Peter meaning there? Well, I think he means two things. He he says, honor them, cherish them. That weaker vessel could be translated as fine porcelain. So so, so treat it like an heirloom. But but he's he's saying two things. One, he's just talking about basic design and biology. And in a world that that was much more brutal and much more dangerous out there, men were given strength to the protection of their family in general. Now, there's Plenty of women and the outpaced men, but in general, men were charged to give protection over their family. So there's that, but again, the social standing in in that time, the the social power that women had, that there was none. In fact, it was what's so ironic about this is uh, where some people read these verses and see it as oppressive to women. This was actually the submersive way that has lifted women and has has made it a safer world. It's because of what Peter has said here. And he says, treat them with respect as, as, as the weaker vessel. Be, be gentle with them. Protect them. Lift them up. Or, or put, it, put it another way. Husbands, you are doing your job if your wife is flourishing in her giftings and callings. Where you can get low and you can say, what, 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 how did God make you? I want to know you. I want to understand you. I want to know what you're passionate about. And then I want to leverage my life. I want to do what I can to lift you up so that you can be what God has called you to be. That's what it means to have headship. Again, if the world understood this, this would be an incredibly attractive thing. Well, he goes on. He gives a reason for it. He says, as the weaker vessel since... Look what he says. Since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. See what he's saying there? He says there's no difference. They're co-image bearers. They're co-heirs with Christ. Husbands, you're going to stand before the King of kings and Lord of lords and you will give an account and with you will be your wives and you will have to give an account to that. They're co-heirs. You're not better you're not worse, but, but you're not better. And, and you have this role to, to cherish and honor and lift up so that your, your wife and your children flourish. This is the vision of biblical marriage. They're heirs with you. You have to give an account. And, and then he says something that should hit home hard. And I'm going to explain why it doesn't. And it's a tragedy. It says, since they are heirs with you, to the, of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. The reason this should hit hard is because in the Bible, prayer is central. This passage isn't t- talking mostly about prayer. He's just saying, look, your spiritual life, men, your vitality with God is connected to, is tied to you loving and cherishing, protecting, lifting, and helping your family flourish. If you do not do that, you should not expect to have any kind of spiritual vitality in your life. This should scare us to death, but it doesn't. Why? 
Because I've found that 10, maybe 15% of men in the church even care about that. That's a tragedy. That's a tragedy that we punt our, our responsibility uh, of shepherding and discipling our children to our wives. So, well, my wife knows so much more. She's so much better at that. Well, praise God, he's given you a good wife that knows a lot. Learn from her. There's no shame in that. But, but you should care about that. There is a, that you are an eternal being and you will give an account to an eternal God and you should care about your prayers being heard and your vitality in God being heard so that it, for, it, it motivates you to get low and serve your wives. You should care about this. Well, what do we do with this? We talked about the then, the always, the now. How, how do we up, apply this today? I would just say a few things. I would say, uh, check yourself. <laughs> check yourself. If you find later today or this week you're having this conversation, you're maybe in an argument, and you want to pull out the card, Pastor Mark said that you need to be like this. You've already lost. You've already lost. You're doing it wrong. Nowhere in the Bible does it tell husbands, hey, make your wives submit. It, that's not there. Peter is inviting women for their joy to willingly submit. It doesn't say, husbands, make sure you push your thumb down on them. Nowhere in the Bible does it say, hey, wives, if you just kind of just grate on your husband enough, maybe you'll beat him down and he'll come to church. And it's mostly women anyways, and so uh, the church is probably going to be overly feminized, and, and they're going to sing songs for women, and the guys are like, why, why are we singing this to Jesus? I don't want to crawl up in his lap. I don't want to rub oil at his beard. I don't want that. Right? That's why this week I told Aaron, hey, we need, we need a manly song. We need a mighty fortress is our God because that's what men want, right? But no, nonetheless, Peter says, don't flaunt it. Don't hide it. Live it. And so I would just say, check yourself. Do, do some examination before you even come to this table, maybe, to say, this is a mirror. And we all fall short, by the way, so there, this is all of us, this is an all play. Where have I fallen short? And you just kind of, first and foremost, confess that to the Lord. I haven't, I haven't provided the atmosphere in my home for my family and my wife to flourish, or I haven't entrusted myself with God. I haven't put my hope in God. I've put my hope in my ability to manipulate a situation. So, so you just kind of confess that. And then later this week, some point, you go to your spouse or, or, and you just say, hey, I, I just need to confess that. And you, and you do it without saying, but if you just did this, you know, no, you just own it all. You just own your part. And they might be like, thanks, appreciate that. Just, that's okay. Just, this is between you and God. This is for you. So, so that's, that's, uh, that's one way. So you, you just say, I, I want to do better. I want to and that's what this church exists to do. We want to make disciples for the glory of God and joy of all people. And so together we want to help marriages. We want to help husbands and wives. We want to help single people uh, just walk in their calling as single people. We, we want to do all of that. And then finally, as a church, think about what Peter has said here. Our marriages, Paul will say in Ephesians chapter 5, that our marriages are meant to display the gospel. That all of our marriages are communicating something to the world. The question is, is it an accurate picture and is it an attractive picture? 
You know, because I, I've, I was actually listening to a sermon on this passage, walking in Costco down, up and down the aisle, and sometimes you kind of match up with a couple. And I was like, oh gosh. And, and it was just the most miserable conversation of her just tearing him down for like four aisles. I had to get away. And, and I don't know if they're Christians or not, but I'm like, I don't want anything to do with that. On the other hand, it is not an attraction to the world if you come in with some 1950s kind of chauvinistic, paternalistic model where the husband walks into the room and he is king and the wife, the wife and the children are all diminutive and silent and you can tell they've just kind of been beaten down and, and he rules his home and he's like, I'm biblical. And you're like, no, I don't want anything to do with that. The world doesn't want anything to do with that either. But show me a family, show me a, a marriage that understands what Peter's saying where there is this inner beauty pursuit by the wife, there is this getting low kind of uh, a headship of the husband to serve and flourish so his family and his children flourish, that is an attraction. That will draw people to Christ. To that end, let me pray for that. Father, we thank you for your word to us. It is a good word, Lord, but it's a hard word. So I pray now for... For the wives in this room right now, I pray that uh, you would help them to fix their eyes on Jesus and put their hope in you. Father, I pray also for the husbands now that we would fix our eyes on Jesus. You're King of kings and Lord of lords, and you put on a crown of thorns for our good, for our life, for our flourishing. So, Pray for the husbands in this room and the future husbands, future wives and otherwise to just embrace this. You designed marriage. You're the maker. You know what is meant for our flourishing. And so let us walk in faith in those ways. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.